from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Center for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's media coordinator, and today we're going to be unpacking Italian politics, namely what led to the fall of Mario Draghi's government last week, what might happen at Italy's next general election, and how this outcome could affect Italy and the EU. Let's first recap how Mario Draghi, the former central banker who had previously headed up both the Bank of Italy and the European Central Bank, came to power. In February 2021, the Italian president, Sergio Mattarella, tasked him with leading a government of national unity to get Italy through the COVID crisis after Giuseppe Conte's government collapsed. So Mario Draghi, a non-partisan leader, led a coalition made up of an eclectic mix of parties. But in recent months, particularly since June, the stability of his government frayed, and this came to a head last week, with Draghi resigning. A snap general election has now been set for September the 25th, and there are concerns that it might lead to the victory of a hard-right government that could mean economic turbulence, confrontation with the EU, and perhaps even broader changes in Italy's foreign policy. For external observers, this has been somewhat confusing to follow, not least because of the number of relevant actors, a new front-runner in the polls who didn't feature in the Draghi coalition, how quickly this has seemingly come to pass, and the fact that, on a European level, Draghi didn't seem to be doing a bad job. Fortunately, I have just the guest to demystify it all. My colleague Luigi Scazzieri, who's a senior research fellow at the CER. Hey Luigi, let's start with last week and what happened. Why did Draghi's government unravel? Hi Rosie, good to be on the podcast first of all, and let me try. So, as you mentioned already, Draghi's government was made up of very different political forces from all, all across the political spectrum, really. So you had the centre-left Partito Democratico, the Democratic Party, you had the populist Five Star Movement, the conservative liberal Forza Italia, which is still led by former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, and then you had the right-wing league led by Matteo Salvini. And actually the only major party that wasn't part of the government was the, the right-wing nationalist Fratelli d'Italia. In English, we refer to it as Brothers of Italy. It's actually the first few words of the, of the Italian national anthem. And its leader, Giorgia Meloni, uh, insisted that there should have been new elections instead. Um, so, so the reality is that there were always substantial disagreements between the parties making up the coalition. And in particular, the League and the Five Star lost popularity in the polls by being part of the government. And, and this provided them with a very strong incentive to oppose or delay some of the laws and reforms that Draghi proposed. So, for example, the Five Star often argued that Draghi should be doing more to help ease economic difficulties for less well-off families. Meanwhile, the League opposed economic liberalisation measures, for example, most recently in relation to taxi services. And for both the Five Star and the League, there was always a significant incentive to quit the government if they thought they could benefit from it. And this incentive was particularly strong for the League because it was losing a lot of votes to Brothers of Italy who, being outside of the government, 
was was benefiting from all all opposition to Draghi. So to my mind, it was always a question of when Draghi's government fell rather than if. And in the past few weeks, you had what I would call a mix of miscalculation and ambition that led to the government's fall. Uh, the Five Star, I, I don't think they actually wanted the government to fall. They thought that they uh, they could be tougher in their demands towards Draghi. And they refused to vote on a major piece of legislation on economic support for, for Italian families. But ultimately, their demands backfired because Draghi refused to budge. And at the same time, the right, the League and Forza Italia, saw that they were doing very well in the polls, that they would likely win if an election took place. And so they basically decided to pull the plug, but with the five star taking a lot of the blame. Mm, okay. Well, thank you for breaking down that political manoeuvring. So we'll talk about elections in a moment. But first, it would be good to consider Draghi's legacy. So what would you single out as his biggest achievements in power? And what's the general Italian public opinion um, about his tenure? So I'll start from the second part of your, of your question. In general, Draghi was and is seen in, in pretty positive terms. So his approval rating in the last few weeks of, of the government was around 50%, which is quite high. Uh, and when it seemed as if his government might collapse, polls indicated that most Italians actually wanted the government to continue and only a minority wanted new elections. And just uh, just yesterday, we had one poll come out on people's perception of his legacy and around uh, comfortably more than half, I think it was about 58%, viewed his legacy and, and his achievements in positive terms. But at the same time, the picture is a little bit more complex because support for Draghi, support for his legacy doesn't actually translate into support for the political forces that explicitly back his agenda in the next election, like the Democratic Party, like uh, some smaller centrist parties. And instead, it is the right-wing parties that were quite strongly opposed to him mm-hmm. that, uh, that are polling much more strongly. When it comes to his biggest achievements, I think the first is that he provided Italy with stability at what was a critical time. He dealt with the second phase of the COVID pandemic, oversaw what was a successful vaccination campaign. He also put together the biggest recovery program in the EU, worth around 190 billion from the EU's recovery fund. And this plan sets out a series of reforms and investments that Italy is supposed to undertake between um, 2021 and 2026. And um, They include a reform of the justice system, of the public administration, measures to foster green economy, digital economy, to introduce competition, to introduce more competition and to reform public procurement. And I'd say this is perhaps the strongest part of his legacy because disbursements of the money from the recovery fund are actually tied to a concrete set of targets called milestones. These need to be met uh, for the money to be actually disbursed. And so there is an incentive on any government now to follow through with reforms. And that's good because there's still quite a lot to do. Uh, Draghi's done a lot, but a lot remains. For example, when it comes to the reform of the justice system and the public administration, these still need to be fully implemented. They are not things that that a single piece of legislation can can accomplish. And then the final achievement that I would single out is, is Draghi's leadership within the EU. Of course, being former head of the ECB, he was already very well known before he became Italy's uh, prime minister, and that helped him uh, very quickly become a respected voice around the European Council table. He pushed the EU to enact 
ambitious uh, joint response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine through sanctions and joint measures to try to transition away from Russian hydrocarbons as quickly as possible. And I think his backing for Ukrainian membership of the EU was very important in actually persuading uh, France and Germany, who were initially quite sceptical, that Ukraine should be granted candidate status. Mm, okay. So a guiding light in the storm and influential on, on the European stage. So if we look at the September election now, we know that Draghi will stay on as caretaker prime minister until then. And parliament has now been dissolved. So parties are in full campaigning mode. What's the picture looking like at the moment? Are are we headed for another coalition government? Are parties grouping into two blocks, a right-wing one and a centre-left one? And who might win? So we'll certainly have a coalition government because that's how the Italian political system works. There's no party that on its own is powerful enough to govern. It's almost certain that uh, the right-wing parties, namely the League, Brothers of Italy and Forza Italia, will run together as a bloc. Not necessarily on a fully common platform, but they will run on common lists and so on. Uh, They don't agree on everything, but running together is the best guarantee of victory in Italy's current uh, electoral system. And the prospect of victory is, I think, a very powerful blue. On the opposite side, the situation is slightly more confused. So for a long time, it seemed as if there could be an alliance between the Democratic Party and the Five Star. However, the Five Star's role in bringing down Draghi's government has poisoned relations between the two. So we are not likely to see a formal alliance between the two. What we're likely to see instead is a smaller centre-left alliance led by the Democratic Party with smaller centre and left-wing parties and the Five Star running on its own. Now, in terms of what to expect, of course, polls can change during a campaign. But from what we know now, the right-wing coalition is very likely to win and is uh, very likely to be able to form uh, a government after the election. In terms of who might be prime minister, this is going to be decided after the election. But it is looking more likely than not uh, that it will be uh, Giorgia Meloni, who is, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the leader of Brothers of Italy. The reason is that Brothers of Italy looks like it will be the the largest party of the right-wing bloc and therefore would have the strongest claim to the position of prime minister. Could we just talk about Meloni for a moment? Um, she seems to come out of nowhere. We said she obviously didn't feature in the Draghi government, and now she might be prime minister. How would you explain her rise? So Meloni has had a whole political career within Brothers of Italy and, and its predecessors party, the Italian Social Movement and Alleanza Nazionale, the National Alliance, which were both parties very much uh, on the hard right. And uh, they all had, like Brothers of Italy itself, a rather positive view, I think, of large elements of the fascist period. Uh, Meloni had one previous stint as a minister, as a youth minister in Berlusconi's uh, government in two, between 2008 and 2011. Uh, and, and she then, well, actually briefly was a member of Berlusconi's own party, uh, because the National Alliance had merged with Berlusconi's party for some time. But then she left uh, at Set Up Brothers of Italy, which for a long time remained very small. So in 2018, she only got 4% of the vote, but now she's polling at over 20%. According to most polls, the, the party is the largest party in Italy, actually. So in terms of how she's managed this, well, first, it's because of the mistakes of others. So both the League and Forza Italia are tainted. The other main parties of the right are tainted in the eyes of many voters. 
by having worked with the Five Star and the Left and having been in government for, for the past uh, 10 years or for much of it and, and voted for unpopular policies. Meanwhile, she benefits from not having been in government at all for the past decade and therefore can credibly claim to represent something new. I also think that a lot of people like that she is unashamedly anti-elitist, that she has this kind of very strong Roman accent, that she seems authentic and genuine and speaks in a way that many voters can connect to. Okay, thanks. And were Maloney to come to power, um, there are fears that this could affect Italy's relations with the EU and even its support for Ukraine, which, which we will come on to later. But let's look at a right-wing government more broadly. Um, what would one mean, firstly, for Italy's relationship with the EU and secondly, for its foreign policy? Let's start with its relations with the EU. Yeah, so neither of the big parties of the right, uh, neither the League nor Brothers of Italy, are calling for an exit from the EU or the Euro, although a lot of their supporters are Eurosceptic and both parties are highly critical of the European Union for the typical reasons that you would expect if you it is overreaching, lacking in legitimacy. And this means there would be plenty of scope for, for poor relations and yeah, we, we should all prepare for a more turbulent relationship with the, with the EU. So, for example, Brothers of Italy says it wants to reassert the supremacy of Italy's constitution over uh, EU law and has also called for a, an Italian's first approach to accessing social services and benefits, which could, of course, discriminate against other EU citizens uh, or, or long-term residents in Italy. Both the Brothers of Italy and the League have made statements to the effect that they support doing more to help Italian businesses and also protecting them from foreign competition. And these measures have the potential to cause a lot of issues, indirectly or directly undermining the EU single market. But of course, their impact depends on if and how exactly they're implemented. And I don't think we should take what is said during an election campaign too seriously. The government might not also have a, a very large majority, which might push them to compromise. And large parts of the right-wing coalition, including much of the League and Forza Italia, but I think also parts of Brothers of Italy, would not want to pursue a course of overt confrontation with the EU. And also in Italy's constitutional system, uh, there would be constraints on what they can do, including, uh, I think, including the president himself would, would pose a constraint and act as a check on the government's policy choices. OK, so it looks like major conflict could be avoided, but I imagine it wouldn't be all plain sailing in any case. That's right. So even if the government would, would avoid large scale disagreements with the EU, that doesn't mean everything would be smooth. Italy would, would essentially go from being seen as a partner under Draghi to a far less constructive player and also a much less influential one on, on all of the key dossiers. So, for example, one of the items on the EU agenda right now is a potential change to the EU's fiscal rules, and Italy wants them to be changed to allow for you know, more investment. Uh, and that would be more difficult because other countries uh, would have little trust in a government that was highly critical of the EU. And then... There's also the question of economic policy and, and the continuation of reforms. And a, a right-wing coalition would most likely come to power promising tax cuts and increased uh, social benefits. Of course, its ability to implement these promises would be uh, limited because they're not really things that Italy can, can easily afford. But even a half-hearted uh, attempt to, uh, to implement them could deal a significant blow to Rome's uh, perceived commitment to reforms and also to its uh, commitment to a sound fiscal policy. 
And this means investors would demand a higher interest rate to buy Italian government debt, with Italy having a debt to GDP ratio of around 150%. And we're already actually seeing that Italy is, uh, is having to pay more to issue, uh, to issue debt. And so that could mean that we get to a difficult situation for Italian bonds if, uh, if rates continue to rise. And that would be problematic for Italy, for the ECB, that would find itself in a, a tough spot, and for the EU as a whole. And then when it comes to continuing the reforms that Draghi began, as I mentioned before, there is a substantial incentive to continue uh, implementing them because the money from the recovery plan is conditional on implementation of these reforms. But it is possible that the pace of implementation will slow and be particularly difficult in some areas. So, for example, when it comes to, uh, to competition laws, I think it would be quite difficult for a right-wing government to proceed with uh, liberalisation. And we've seen in just recent months, actually, how the right-wing parties are opposed to measure to liberalise, uh, for example, taxi services, but also reissuing concessions to beach operators. And all this doesn't bode too well, at least for, for that specific measure. And it could lead to disagreements uh, with the Commission over disbursements from the recovery fund. If, for example, there are arguments about whether the targets that, that Italy signed up to have been met or not. Mm, okay. And then if we look at what such a right-wing coalition's foreign policy might look like, as I said, there's concern about what this could mean for Italy's support for Ukraine within the EU, particularly as both Matteo Salvini and Giorgia Meloni have in the past looked rather fondly towards Russia. So do you think that Italy's stance would, would shift? You're right that there are a lot of concerns about the potential foreign policy of a right-wing coalition, and particularly given Salvini's past admiration for, for Putin and his dealings with, uh, with Putin's party. Uh, and I think both in Salvini's case and in Meloni's case, a lot of their stance towards Putin and Russia was, I would put it down to a liking for Putin's strongman image and for how this played well with certain parts of the Italian electorate more than a broader kind of pro-Russia, pro-Putin stance. Although, of course, the whole of the Italian political spectrum, some would argue, is uh, you know, very soft on Russia, at least compared to other European countries. But both Meloni and Salvini have had to essentially disown their past attitude since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February. And actually, Meloni's been quite hawkish. So she has supported the government on arms deliveries uh, and support for Ukraine, even though she didn't have to. And, and this stance builds on her longstanding Atlanticism, on her pro-NATO stance, and on her efforts to build close links with uh, the Republicans in the US, as well as on her membership of the European Conservatives and, uh, and Reformist groups at the European level, in which one of the major parties is Poland's uh, uh, Law and Justice Party. Salvini has been softer. He's um, opposed, but not vetoed arms deliveries to Ukraine. But that's not again, because of a pro-Russia stance per se, but rather, I think, because he has latched onto the position that arms deliveries fuel the conflict, which is actually a very common stance in Italy. And what we know from polls is that a lot of Italians, indeed a majority, don't actually uh, support supplying arms to Ukraine, although they back uh, Ukraine politically. So I'm sure Putin is happy about uh, Draghi's fall, but I think he is deluded if he thinks that there will be a big change in, in Italy's policy. The League has been in government before. You know, they said they would oppose sanctions against Russia. In the end, they did nothing. They didn't veto sanctions. They voted or they went along with new ones. Um, and of course, the League would be governing with Brothers of Italy, with Forza Italia, which are both strongly Atlanticist. 
So actually, I don't think a right-wing government is uh, is likely. Uh, indeed, it is very unlikely, I would say, to sabotage the EU stance towards Russia. It would continue to back Ukraine. It would continue to back sanctions. It wouldn't favour stronger sanctions if they seemed like they would really be damaging to Italy's economy. But it would be open to, to compromise, I think, even on that. And taking a step back, the reality is that some opposition to tougher sanctions would be the, the position the likely position of any Italian government going ahead. When it comes to Ukraine's EU membership, it, well, Ukraine's EU candidacy is now a reality. Its progress in the near term doesn't really depend on what, uh, what Italy says or wants, but rather on reforms within Ukraine. Um, the one issue there might be is on arms deliveries, I think, um, because of the league's uh, scepticism. But here I would just say that Italian arms deliveries to Ukraine you know, aren't comparable to those of, of the United States, of course. So even if they were reduced, well, the impact on the course of the war wouldn't uh, wouldn't really be uh, major. So, yeah, on the whole, I think that fears of a major shift in Italy's foreign policy are misplaced. OK, brilliant. Um, well, thank you. You've cleared cleared a lot up in that conversation. Um, I think we'll, we'll, we can leave it there. And I'm sure at the CER we will cover more of Jai's departure or the election um, in publications, probably another podcast in the autumn. Don't forget to subscribe to us. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And this has been the CER podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Luigi. And goodbye. Thank you, Rosie. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.